0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Mark Lamont Hill, a man who wears many hats. Mark is the author of multiple books, including Nobody and We Still Here, which is out next month. Mark is also a professor at Temple University, the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books, an independent bookstore in Philadelphia, and now he's a podcast host. His podcast is called Coffee and Books, and let me just say, it is perfect for fans of the Stacks, as it's about books, reading, and he interviews a whole bunch of authors. Get to know Mark today, and then join us on October 28th as we discuss the autobiography of Malcolm X for the Stacks Book Club. As a reminder, everything we discuss on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. Every week, I like to take a moment to thank the Stacks Pack. Those are the people who show their support for this show by joining us over on Patreon. They help make the show possible and they earn perks for their generosity like our virtual book club. If you want to show your love for the Stacks, please head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks. And this week, an extra special thank you to some of our newest members, Sachi Argabright, Diana Ng, Natalia Vargas, Emma Fisher, Nani Viv, Heather O, Jamie Toporovich, Chelsea, and Rachel Taylor. Thank you all so much. All right, let's do it. Mark, welcome to the Stacks. I am so excited to have you.
1: Oh, I'm excited to be here. This is like this is like a nerd's fantasy.
0: Yeah, this is totally two book lovers, book podcasters big readers you definitely have a few more titles than I have but that doesn't matter we're we're on a level playing field today. that's it, I'm gonna but... just pretend like I have a PhD <laughs> and I'm a professor and all that other stuff yeah that stuff doesn't matter uh, yeah it doesn't it doesn't matter not, not for today at least it matters it totally matters um so why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself people know your bio because I did that in the intro but like tell us a little bit where you're from kind of how you came to reading that sort of stuff
1: yeah, I um I am from Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up in North Philadelphia and then West Philadelphia. And uh I I don't think I ever imagined that I would be doing the work that I'm doing now. Um it's it's a dream to be able to be an author. Um it's a dream to be able to be a bookstore owner, to be a book podcaster. Um, All these things that might to some people seem like, you know, random things for me are like The compilation of years of Love and passion for reading and writing um, And an opportunity to kind of pay that forward in a lot of different ways Um, And it didn't, it started at three uh, Years old, going on four My mother uh, would bring home books For me to read, my mom was a school teacher she went to college later. Um, she had me at 40, 40. and uh, she came home with these books. And I, I didn't know that she was, you know, taking them from her school. I thought all all books had uh, "Property <laughs> of School District of Philadelphia" on the front of them. I thought that's just what books said, you know. And uh-huh. and she would bring these books home, and I would like a lot of kids. I'd I'd look at the pictures, and she'd read to me. Uh, and after a while, sometimes kids will pretend they're reading And they're really just telling the stories that they see from the pictures uh, right. And then one day I started, like, reading, reading And <laughs> and she was like, oh, that's so nice And then she walked over, like, wait a minute Like, you reading And then, like, other people kind of came over and You know, she called my next door neighbor uh, Miss Wilson and Miss Christine from down the street And they started looking, and like, yo, that boy reading And before I knew it um, I, I I was reading as a performance you know and I'm reading like you know Dick Jane and Spot you know I, I came up old school so you know the Scott Forsman books with Dick Jane and Spot and you were like you know doing sight words and phonemic awareness and all that kind of stuff so I was just trying to figure it out and it was early on that I realized that this idea of a young black boy reading was a thing um, and, and for good and for bad you know um, I learned from that moment that my life in so many ways, would be shaped by those choices of what I read and wrote. That my life would be greatly benefited by what I read and wrote. That I get a lot of joy from it, and some pain too. And um, and so I spent the rest of my life committed to it. You know, I, I had years in high school where I, I, there was never a point where I didn't read. Um, I, I, before even before high school. So I, I, I after I started reading Dick Jane and spot books, then the next thing is I'd read whatever my mama could get me, and then. Uh, whatever was laying around the house, magazines, books—it didn't matter. Um, I remember by fourth grade, you know, I went—I to, I got bused to the northeast, which was like a working-class white, well, part of Philadelphia at the time. And I read whatever they had, and the school library was like my friend, you know. And I would read—I mean, I would read like *The Outsiders* by S.E. Hinton, but then I turn around and read *Judy Bloom*. You know, you know, I'm like this ten year old boy like reading like, "Are you there, God, it's me Margaret?" You know, like some kids are like, you know it's like i must I must I must increase my bus, like I'm reading that you know as a ten year old right. boy and 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 learning a lot, right about ideas of girlhood and womanhood, uh, I was learning a lot about identity. Um, I was learning a lot about whiteness and white life, but I was also learning how reading was bound up in escape and pleasure and joy. Even if it wasn't my story, um, and then I, I read wrestling magazines. I, I was I was a wrestling nerd, so I <laughs> I, I read I read um, the WWF magazine, but then I read all the independent wrestling magazines, and I knew all the editors, all the writers, um, and I knew wrestling wasn't real. Um, but that was part of the joy for me because in in pro wrestling there's a thing called kayfabe. Which is the kind of um, it, it, when you're in kayfabe, you're in character, right? It's it's when you 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 act as if the stuff is real, um, right? And, and so it's a willful suspension of disbelief, uh, and so I learned how to suspend disbelief as I read as another way of extracting joy and pleasure from the process. Um,
0: I love that,
1: and it was wonderful, you know. Um, and then you know, middle school hit and. I started liking these girls and wanting to be a basketball player and doing all this other stuff that made reading not less of a priority, but but well, maybe less of a priority. It didn't make it. I didn't love it less. I just didn't do it as much because. Right. The world was pulling me in all these other directions. Right. Um, and it wasn't. And then by high school, I was reading a lot again, but it, it, it wasn't central to my identity anymore. Um, basketball was central to my identity telling jokes was central to my identity all the other stuff I but think. I was still reading um, and then eventually you know I went to I, I was a very average high school student very average student B's and C's really C's and d's um, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest
0: yeah let's not let's not rewrite the history yeah yeah, okay? yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. definitely average is generous um, and then I went to college and was still doing better but 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 still average and then toward the end of college i i fell in love again with reading um through some courses i was taking um and i um it was it was very very um interesting right i was like i'm gonna get through college and do whatever and figure this thing out and then i took a class called the black woman um taught by a woman Renoir mcdonough uh and it was a course on black feminism and um I read the, I remember we read Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. And we, um, what else did we do? And we read a couple other things. Um, And it was me, one other brother, and like 20, 25 women. Hmm. And by the end of that semester, I learned a lot about a lot of things. But I, I walked away with a powerful understanding of black feminist thought but but i also walked away with a belief that i could read and write for a living it, it was it, that class made me realize that i that that thinking as a profession not in terms of professional sense of money but let me not even use the word profession thinking as a vocation um as a calling um for me was was quite quite delightful it brought me so much joy and so i um i kept doing it i kept doing it i kept doing it, kept doing it. and um and that led me to grad school, and that led me to to reading and writing, uh, for for a living. Can I tell you just one more quick story? Cause I left yeah, some, you can
0: tell me any story.
1: Okay, because I left something important out. Um, okay. When I was a kid, um, you know, my parents my parents were from the South. My mother was uh, born in Farmville, Virginia, in 1939. Okay. Um, black woman uh, in the South, or she was a reader. I took I got all my reading from her, uh, all my reading sort of love and passion. Um, they told her she read too much too. You know she grew up on a farm, and she grew up in Prince Edward County. I mean they they closed the school um, after Brown versus Board of Education. They said we'd rather not have school than to let black people go. Um, so her and her siblings eventually made it up their way up north to Darby, PA, right outside of Philly, and they. That's why she went to college late. That's why she studied late because you know. Life didn't allow it. My father born 1928. Wow. Um, yeah, my father is 92 years old. Wow, yeah, yeah. I actually saw him for the first time to about, an, and that's what uh, maybe about an hour, two hours ago, I saw him for the first time since March because of COVID. I haven't been able to see him, he's very, very sick. Um, right. and he, he checked into the hospital and, um, they took him to the nursing home afterward and I just, we weren't allowed in. And so today's the first day I've seen him. So it brought me great joy and some sadness, mm-hmm. but some great joy to see him today. But he was born in 1928 and uh, you know, high school only went to 11th grade in Wilkes County, Georgia, where he grew up. Washington, Georgia was a city. Uh, and he left after high school, went to the army for, for four years uh, and then came up to Philadelphia to join my uncle Bobby. Uncle Bobby was born in 1917. He joined the military as well, uh, fought in World War II. And after World War II, Uncle Bobby came up north. And like all black soldiers, there was no martial plan for the, you know, like there was in Europe. There was no martial plan for the black American soldier. There was no GI Bill for the Negro in any real way. He had to ride behind Nazi POWs on on the train ride back home. You know, he... He couldn't get a job. His money was still counterfeit in the South. He couldn't buy a hamburger. He couldn't sit at a Woolworth counter. He couldn't go to Horn and Harder. And so, Uncle Bobby tried to figure out this thing without the benefit of all that education. Uncle Bobby read. Uncle Bobby got books. Uncle Bobby joined movements and churches and anything that would that would get him closer to his understanding of the world to try to make sense of the world around him. And so, um, Uncle Bobby. Uh, oh, what a fascinating man. Um, he came up north about a decade before my father, I believe. Certainly, some, maybe five to ten years before my father. And uh, so, when my father got to the north, he, he lived with him. Uh, Uncle Bobby had a racial analysis of the world, Uncle Bobby had a critique. So, when I'd go to Uncle Bobby and Um Bessie's house uh, as I got older, you know, my father would still take us over there after he had his own house and his own family and such. Uncle Bobby would have a stack of Jet Magazines, uh, which I keep still keep here. Uncle Bobby would have a stack of Jet Magazines, a stack of Ebony. Uh, they, they, that same company, the Johnson Company, also made for a short run some Reader's Digests. Uh It was a black version of Reader's Digest. Uh, he had Black Enterprise. He had all these amazing books and he would bring them to me. Or he would set them on the table. He wouldn't bring them to me. I'd just go through them. And so I'm reading every week. I'm reading all this stuff. And then we'd be watching the baseball game. And Uncle Bobby would be like, yeah, see, the Philly. You could cheer for the Phillies. And you could cheer for Mike Schmidt. But they just started having black players, like, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So they racist, you know. And so Uncle Bobby would have this critique of race. And, and he'd have all these books. He gave me a copy of E. Franklin Frazier's Black Bourgeoisie, a first edition copy. Wow. Uh, so so, he, he introduced me to books. So my mama is in the backdrop. And then he, in the in the front, brings me this really, really, really fascinating, really fascinating um, body of work, all made by black people, right? Black authors, black publishing houses, black topics, black pictures, black beauties of the week, black celebrations, black ads, all of it. And so, you know, part of what Uncle Bobby did was he introduced me to a black uh, the tradition of black letters. You know, you know, and 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 so throughout the years, even when I wasn't doing reading the way I should have been or want to be doing reading, I still um, I still had these books in the back of my mind. And when I would go to the gallery, which is like the mall in, in, in Philly downtown and we go to hang out and, 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 and be teenagers, I'd still stop in the black bookstore. After basketball on Saturdays, I'd go to Hakim's bookstore on 52nd and uh, 52nd Street in Philadelphia. And there was another one in Atlanta on on, on uh, MLK Boulevard on, on Morehouse Campus by the great Daud uh black black Muslim brother. Um, and in both cases. I would go to the store and I'd read and I'd be, I, there was that tradition again of black authors, the Hakim booties, the third world press. I'd be reading Gwendolyn Brooks. I'd be reading Sonia Sanchez. I'd be reading Elijah Muhammad. I'd be reading these conspiracy books like Behold a Pale Horse. And, and you know, I'd be I'd be doing all this stuff uh, and it was rooted in uncle Bobby's. And so part of what I did later on um, was I, I I opened uncle Bobby's bookstore in Philadelphia. And the reason why I opened uncle Bobby's coffee and books was because um, I wanted to create a space of, um, sorry, of um, of opportunity and possibility uh, for the next generation of readers that that my father and and Uncle Bobby and my mom and everyone else allowed for me to have.
0: It's just so special that you have this tradition of readers in your family because it's so rare to have I mean I think for anybody even now even today in 2020 for young people to have two parents that read let alone read passionately let alone read critically let alone read with an eye towards integrating what they've learned into the way that they see the world. You know, I think so many people read books as sort of a quote unquote escape and don't ever apply what they're learning, even if it's fiction, even if it's commercial fiction, even if it's Danielle Steele. You know, I think so many people think that their reading is separate from who they are or how they see the world. So, I mean, the the these stories of your father and your mother and Uncle Bobby and, and the fact that you basically were reading with a critical eye from a young age, because the readers in your life were showing you that is just really, I mean, it's sort of unheard of, I feel like, especially for a black person, you know, like, I think for anybody, but I think especially for black people in America, like, we're not necessarily um, given the time and the space to, to read, you know, it takes time to read, it takes, you know, if you're working two jobs, if you're, trying to figure out where things are coming from, or even, you know, if your community doesn't value reading, the people around you don't value reading. And that's not just black people. That's all people. But if you don't feel like you have the encouragement of the people around you to read, you're not going to read because it's a major time commitment, you know? So I think that that's just really special. And then, I mean, Uncle Bobby's bookstore is, or Coffee and Books is, is, you know, I, I feel like when people talk about bookstores, especially in Philadelphia, on this podcast, I hear people mention Uncle Bobby's all the time. So I personally can't wait till I can travel again and come to Philadelphia and go and see it. Because I mean, in doing this podcast, I think um, Uncle Bobby's opened in 2017. Yep. And then this show started in 2018. And pretty much from the beginning, people were being like Uncle Bobby's and I was like what is this place so I mean what a, what a gift but I do have a question about being a bookseller because I know people it's a lot of people who listen to this show to readers I know it's like their dream to open a bookstore so I'm curious what is one thing that you wish readers knew or understood better about being a bookseller
1: mm, that's a that's a great question uh um Hmm. Readers, you said? Sure. Okay. I, can, can I? So I have a couple answers. That's why. I'm...
0: Okay. You, you can also change the question. I'm very open to questions I want to have fidelity <laughs> to this
1: question. I'm just, I mean, I think one, people don't understand um the biggest thing that happens in a bookstore i think people don't understand I, let me let me let me let me take a step back and then i'll answer the question i think the biggest thing people in general don't get is how hard it is to sell a book yeah right so when you open a bookstore you have to have a lot of books on the shelf so that people want to come in the it takes about it takes on average four seasons for the book to actually sell that's on the shelf wow so when you start a bookstore if you put just let's put a conservative number let's say you Ten thousand books on the shelf, right? Okay. And and assuming that the average book gets a forty percent markdown. Okay. Right. So just, just doing some rough number, If the average book is twenty dollars, and and I you know and I get to buy it for eight for. This is why I have people around me for math purposes. <laughs> I, I I get to buy it for twelve and sell it for twenty. Okay. Right. I still have to buy 12, 12 spend twelve dollars times what did I say, 10,000 times 10,000 books. So right. now I have to have $120,000 of product on the shelf, almost none of which is going to sell, just so that you can mm-hmm. buy the book that will sell, which is usually the new book that comes out. Right. So so most of the stuff that's on there does not sell. Um, mm. Why is that important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. One, um, as a black bookseller, People say, why not? Or, or as an independent bookseller, not just a black bookseller, people say, and this is something that I think readers or, or customers don't always think about is, why can't you just sell it cheaper, right? Because right. Amazon will always beat us at that, right? I can't beat right. Amazon at selling um, books at, at a cheap price. Amazon essentially wants to beat every bookstore in the world, even if it has to take a loss to do so. So that right. book that I buy for 12, right, and then sell for the, the actual price of 20, uh and I don't even know if that's what we we usually don't even do with that make that much of a profit. Usually we buy it for twelve and sell it for sixteen. That's actually more accurate. Um Amazon will buy it for twelve and sell it for twelve ten. And if you catch Amazon on the right day, they'll sell it for eleven
0: ninety
1: because they don't care because they'd rather everybody buy the books from them and then if they wipe all of us off off the map, then they can raise it up to whatever they want. And so and they, they make their money doing all these other things. Right right I also pay people living wages and do other things so so part of it is the is the is the nuts and bolts like business part of it is that we just don't the margins aren't that high once we pay people and do all the other things and so we'd love to sell I'd love to sell the book for a dollar cheaper you know right. I, but I, I can't and that, and that sometimes that extra dollar you spend is an investment in community and in creating a kind of space where all this other awesome stuff happens right and now look there are people who they look. I want this book. I got $10. I can't afford the 12. I get it. I have no judgment about that. I'd rather people read than not read. Right. But that's another piece of it. The other part of that is you can't own a bookstore and not have at least 10 people a day come in to, to sell, to tell you, tell you about their self-published book that (laughs) they want you to have. And I love self-published books. I love self-published authors. Now we try to create space for them to, um, to sell stuff. But again, there's so there's such limited real estate in a bookstore of course for the because again almost everything on the shelf is not going to sell for another 11 which you know between you know for for a year after the time it goes goes up so but i but but remember all our capital is on the wall right which is different than in a, a sandwich store where i can just i can buy 500 sandwiches and sell 500 sandwiches. And if the next day right. they don't sell, I can buy a hundred sandwiches. I can, I can hit a, a point right. where, but you don't right. need to see a 500 sandwiches on a shelf to, to, to want to right. buy one. But you right. kind of need to see a room full of books to want to come in right. and buy one. Right. You're not going to
0: if books. you walk in and it's empty, you're going to be like, this place is right. weird. Right, exactly,
1: hard pass, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so 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 the tr- so the trick of it is part of it is, is that we, we have to be really efficient and thoughtful about sort of what we sell and how we sell. And so I can't, you know, in a very small bookstore, for example, have five hundred self-published authors, not because the book isn't good, but the truth is, remember, it takes a year to sell when people know the book. Right, right. So, yeah. so you know, so I think that's one of the one of the the um, the challenges. Of, I, I, but I, I don't want to just make but I love being a bookseller, and one of the things people don't know uh, that I think I think people should know is that there's no greater joy than when someone comes in a bookstore and says, particularly when a young person comes into a bookstore who's looking for a book and say, you know, I want to, I want to learn about such and such, or I just want to read, I'm trying to figure this thing out. What can you recommend? You know, when a parent comes in and says, you know, I'm looking for a first book for my little girl, or little boy. And I get to walk over to that shelf and pull out a board book and say, look, look at this Jabari Asim, look at this bell hooks book. Look at this, you know, for an older kid, look at this Jason Reynolds, you know, to be able to pull these books out and say, yo, read this. This is going to make your life different. When when somebody who's headed off to college says, what should I read? And I can say, yo, read Heavy by KSA Layman, right? Or, I mean, like, I, I get to be responsible right. for handing somebody their first copy of Heavy or their first copy of The Bluest Eye.
0: Right, right. I, I can relate to that as a podcaster, like when people will you know, DM me on Instagram and be like, Tracy recommended this book and I read it and it was great. And I'm like, oh, okay, well now I can retire because (laughs) I've never been happier. And I feel like as a book lover, there's just not a better feeling than nailing a book recommendation. And especially, I mean, and that's just someone who recommends, but not as someone who's invested their time and their money and, you know, their family name in this bookstore, like that has got to be, you know, 10 times greater.
1: It it makes everything else worth it. I if I never made a dollar selling books, um, I could I, I would keep the business going forever just for that joy of yeah. being able to 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 offer ideas, offer traditions to people, to expose people to things that I think makes their life better. I'm a better person for what I've read. And I yeah. know other people are too.
0: Same. I'm so I'm like feeling hot and stressed right now because I have so many things I want to talk to you about. And I'm like looking at all my questions being like, I'm not going to be able to ask all these questions, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm
1: chilling. I'm chilling. We good.
0: We got time, but I just, there's, you're just so prolific as a human. I mean, you're young, you're young. You're in your forties, right?
1: Yeah. 41.
0: And you are just like, you're, you've done so much and you, you're just so prolific that I'm like, how am I going to get all this in? But we're gonna try, we're gonna do our best. Um, I, it would be crazy of me not to give you an opportunity right now to talk about what's happening on November 10th.
1: Do you wanna tell the people? Ah, yes, yeah, you know, it's so <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. So I have a new book coming out. It's called, We Still Here, uh, Pandemic, Policing, Protest, Impossibility." Um, It's a little book that I put together um, this summer uh, on Haymark with Haymarket press that I'm very excited and very proud of. Um, I it's a, it's my way of trying to help people make sense of um, this moment that we're in not just 2020 but the craziness of 2020 to be sure. Um, yeah. we're in a year there was a moment in, in June there was a moment in June where um, I told you I haven't seen my father. Mm-hmm. Um I hadn't up until a few hours ago I hadn't seen my father since the very beginning of March. Um and I didn't know how long the, the pandemic was going to last. I didn't know how long we were going to be sort of in the house. And George Floyd had been killed. Um all this stuff had happened. And there was a march in Philadelphia downtown. And I said, Well, I'm young, but I ain't that young, right? I'm in my forties now. So if I get COVID, I should be okay, but like I don't I don't I don't want to test that spirit, you know? Right. Um and if I out there at a march and I and then I won't be able to see my dad. And my dad was so sick the last time I saw him that I wasn't sure that I'd ever see him again. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, if I go to this march to protest the state killing us Mm-hmm. I could put myself at risk and others who I love at risk for death. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, what a paradox. What a, what a, what a, what a, what is more reflective of being black in this country than that?
0: A thousand percent.
1: You know, it's like, how will we die today? Right. And, and so I said, I got to think through this. Um, I had just finished another book, which will be coming out in February called, uh, oh. except for Palestine. And, uh, I, w- I didn't have the energy or the spirit to write a whole other book. And I didn't want to do a, a crash book, as they say, on COVID or on, on George Floyd, because like, you know, the the, the story is still unfolding. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't I, I never I don't want to be a sort of opportunistic writer. But what I wanted to do was think through this thing. And so I sat down initially, I sat down with some just for some conversations with my my dear friend. Frank Barat, who's an activist uh, from France, who's currently living in Belgium. And we had some conversations and we were just talking about COVID and what was going on. And then something said, you know, have another one with them. There was something generative about it. And before I knew it, we'd had a bunch of conversations and we had recorded them. And so what I decided to do was make a short book of sort of co- of the conversations we had. It's mostly, now, conversations is, is, is probably even overstating it because he asked the question, but I'm giving very long answers, kind of like uh-huh. I'm doing this interview, very long <laughs> answers um, to the question. Um, and then afterward, that's like the round one. And then after we did that, of course, I went back and rewrote some of the answers and made them more like essays. Um, but the base of it are these conversations I had on this moment. Um, and, and they and they run the gamut. You know, we talk. I talk about um, I talk about how we got here, for example. Right, the first chapter is called Preexisting Conditions, and what I'm trying to make the case for is that COVID is an unexpected sort of illness or pandemic that hit all of us. But there's a very particular way that the economic and social conditions for this were created long before 2020. And so, for me, right. the preexisting conditions I am talking about aren't just, you know, whether you have diabetes or not. I am talking about right. white supremacy. I am talking about capitalism. Right. Um, there is a chapter called "Corona Capitalism," which looks at the kind of um, how we got here and what it means to have an arrangement, an economic arrangement where you know the richest people in the world have gained two hundred billion dollars in the first quarter of this of this pandemic, while the rest of us are suffering. Right? Right? You know, what does it mean? You know, when we talk about social distancing. You know, um, we talk about that as if it's just a choice, right? Right. Uh, but it's not, right? I mean, if you live in a housing project, you can't social distance. If I got to work the front line at, at the at the register at the big box retailer to survive, or I'm working for Amazon or Tyson Foods, I can't social right. distance. If I'm in prison, I can't social distance. Right. Right. And so, so thinking about sort of the economic conditions that that make these things, but 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 the problem is just real quick is 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 that we want people to believe that COVID is simply a a personal choice. That's what neoliberalism does, right? That's what free market solutions do. They make everybody feel like their success or or their failure is up to them. So me being sick from COVID is about me having distance, me wearing gloves, me wearing a mask, me, you know, when the truth is there's a set of economic conditions that got me here. Mm -hmm. um, And so trying to get through that, I'm thinking about the disposability of people in prison and the disposability of people in nursing homes. Um, Think about people in New York that have to, Make masks and hand sanitizer in prison, but can't get any for themselves while they're making it. You know, and then right. I and then I, and then I just wanted to pivot before you know just to wrap it up. I just wanted to pivot to, um, because I hate people that do these hard book sales. You know, I don't want to do that. But like, no. I just I, you know I I want to think about the the, this, the moment in terms of uh what it means for George Floyd to get killed in front of us. Yeah. yeah. What it means for, for Breonna Taylor to be killed on her own couch or in her own house or unarmed or any of the factors. Right. Right. Um, right, Of course. You know, I I want to think about what the spectacle of death is. We didn't just see George Floyd get killed. We watched it for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Right. Thinking that through for me, um, was important to think about. But not just think about what it, what it, how it traumatized us, but to think about what it means on a day-to-day basis for us to be surrounded by spectacles of Black death. Why do we have to see... people? Why did I have to see Ahmaud Arbery get killed on my timeline?
0: Right. Right. I mean, this is something that I feel like I think about a lot and has been on my mind a lot, is this idea of, like, do you remember... I'm sure you do, when, um, when there was all the, like, ISIS beheadings that were videotaped and you couldn't see them like if they went up on youtube they were taken down instantly you know like you know they got out people did see them but they were monitored and they were watched and they those people who were murdered were protected their death was protected yep. and i've been thinking a lot about it because we we don't get that protection we don't you know i mean it's even more it's even become even worse it's like it's not just that we don't get that protection it's that our deaths have become a form of entertainment. And of course, that's nothing new. Of course, the lynching. I mean, if you know the history of lynching, you know that that was I mean, they were selling body parts and postcards and all of that. So I, I, this isn't new, but just thinking about it in because a lot of people will say, well, we need to see the videos because we need to understand it's happening. And when I say a lot of people, I, I really mean a lot of white people. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I just want to be clear because I, you know, I know a lot of, for a lot of black folks, like what I'm saying is nothing new, but a lot of white folks will say, we need to see these videos because we didn't know. We didn't know. And of course, any Black person who has any sense of history will say, well, what about Emmett Till? I thought that's why we did that whole cover shoot. You know, like I thought that's why we let him have an open casket. I thought that's why, you know, um, but I thought that's why we had Ida B. Wells. I thought that's why we had all of this stuff before. And it's almost like in Black Death there is such a voracious appetite for the entertainment of our death that the goalposts, like so many other things for black folks, just keep moving, you know? Yeah. And I guess this is sort of a good segue um, In into – I kind of cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, um, no, fine, but please. I'm going to sort of segue into your, your profession because you are uh, – uh, one of your professions, you're a professor of media studies and urban education. And so I'm sort of curious – what that is and what your training or your education, um, your reading, your research has to say about Black Death as entertainment.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm I fortunate to teach at Temple University as a professor of media studies. And, and, and you know, media studies is sort of my home right now. And, and I do a lot of work with media, both as a content producer and as someone who studies uh, media, particularly like digital media, uh particularly thinking about sort of how the camera and the camera phone um, have radically reorganized the relationship between us and the state, how we can surveil our, you know, the state in certain kinds of ways, how we can push back against state surveillance in certain ways, how we can narrate our own experience or counter-narrate the stories of mainstream media and corporate media and such. Um, a lot of stuff happening there. Um, when I think about that with regard to Black Death, you know... Part of what I think about is the way, as you said, that it's become it can become a form of entertainment for folk. Um, and I think there's a small part of people that do that, You know, they're, they're sort of indifferent to black suffering. But there's a way that you know understandings of who and what black people are um, are rooted in these white supremacist narratives of of, of um, us not being full human beings, right? The idea that we can we can take more pain. I mean, black women and, and, and black people in general, but particularly black women in, in emergency rooms. Uh, they have to have a pain level, a pain level of like 10 to get the, the pain meds that white women at, can get at five or six. Right. So there's a way that th- there's an expectation that's different for us. Um, and so part of it is that they just don't think we're human. Um, when George Floyd when we have to watch, George Floyd get killed over and over again, there's a way that his body becomes objectified. Right. right. Because the only way you can keep watching that over and over and over again right. is if you right. think it's not a person. Right. when you look at the grand jury testimony as i talk about my book nobody if, if you look at the grand jury testimony of darren wilson when he's mike brown i mean not only does he does he refer to him as it at one point right he talks right. about him running through the bullets yeah so there's a way that there's just a this exception that we are these magical negroes who can absorb violence and pain in other ways and so it and, and so the sympathy that you get when a white teenager is missing or when there's a school shooting or when there's a a a, a a a terrorist attack, you know, in 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 a, in a particular country. Those types of we just th- those people all deserve sympathy. It's an awful; those are all awful things. But right. when black folk die, it becomes normalized and we become inured to it. And and that I think is what's scary and dangerous. That's what worries me the most. Um, yeah. and and so for me, um, as a scholar, what I try to do is is strike that balance. We do need awareness we do need people to know that we're dying out here. People do need to see the, right. and, and there are moments where, you know, white people need to be able to say, you know what, I can't even deny this. I mean, look at Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in Central Park on Memorial Day. Right. It was like, oh, wait a minute. You telling me, oh, wait a minute. So, oh shit, she did what? She caught the right, police. Right.
0: Yeah. right.
1: Like they had to see that, you know what yeah. I'm saying? And, and, and George Floyd's death on video did make people who otherwise would have defended the cops say, wait a minute, okay, I saw it. This was unnecessary. Right, right. Even Candace right. Owens said this is wrong,
0: right? right? So
1: <laughs> the bar is so low, <laughs> right, right? But 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 this is this is kind of what had to happen in that way, right? It had to right. happen. However, however, um, at the same time, um, I one, I think we should have we should be able to opt in or out of it, right? I, yes. I saw Mont Arbrey get killed, not by my choice. I would have watched it eventually as a, as a, as a journalist and as a scholar. But I was just going through my timeline and saw and just saw this poor boy get killed i mean it it is awful um so for me we need to be opted opt out of it, but it shouldn't become so pervasive no other race of people get has to see people who look like them get murdered on national news and on their timelines all the time i mean it's 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 awful and that's the part that i that I want to be able to undo that's the part that I want to be able to um Uh, you know, kind of help us resist and reimagine, you know, through the work that I do.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. So this is the last thing I'm going to ask you before we kind of transition back into books, but I'm very, very curious about this. So you're a professor of media studies. You understand the way the media works. You are someone who, you know, you get it. So I'm curious about the term cancel culture, because I don't believe in it. I don't think that cancel culture is what people say cancel culture is. However, you're someone who sort of was publicly, quote unquote, canceled for remarks that you made. And so I'm curious what you think about the idea of cancel culture. And I'm curious about how it's been weaponized by white people in power. Because what I often say is that for me, in my mind, the only people who ever get actually canceled are black and brown people and sometimes you know queer people and just depend you know are, are quote unquote marginalized people you yeah. know like i don't think that like louis ck has been canceled because guess what louis ck somehow is always telling jokes somewhere and i'm seeing it on twitter so i'm curious as someone who who was you know you lost your job over remarks you made not at work and uh, and so i'm and curious my day off <laughs> yeah like so rude, first of all, you know? I was yes. like, can I just get a break to go talk to
1: the UN? Like, leave right. me alone. Um, right.
0: But I'm just kind of curious about what you, how you see cancel culture.
1: You know, the, the the phrase always throws me off because it just means so many things to so many people. Like you said, it's been appropriated right. by so many folk. Um, and now I'm watching white men use it as the excuse to not be held accountable for right. the harm they do through their words and actions, right. right? And it's like, oh, we're just canceling it, you know? I I don't believe in canceling people I don't believe uh, That people are disposable I think that we have to call people in not out We have to challenge people to be better But I do believe in accountability And I think that um, We have to find ways to hold people accountable For the damage they do and for the harm that they cause Um, As a prison abolitionist You know I think that we have to find Restorative ways to do that And that we have to move out of the kind of posture Of always trying to be punitive and punish people Um, But I don't think that but I don't think that that's the same as canceling people. You know, when people say, "Oh, so and so was canceled, so and so was canceled," I'm always turned off by it because it, it kind of speaks to a certain kind of disposability um, sure. that, that we that we that we make people. You know, and and and, and I don't believe in that. I also don't believe um, that there's no redemption for people. But redemption right. comes with contrition. It comes with restoration. It comes with with repairing the damage that's been done. And I think we need to do that. But I do think it's okay to say. This person does harm, continues to do harm, and I need to find ways to protect myself and our respective communities from those people and from those acts until, one, they stop doing harm and, two, they repair the damage that's been done. I don't see that as canceling people. I see that as just accountability.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think that's that's great. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. All right. We are back with a segment that we do. Um, It's called Ask the Stacks. Someone has written into me asking for you and I to give them a book recommendation. So I'll read the email. I'll go first so that you have a second to think. And then um, this one's sort of long, so you're going to have to really pay attention. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay, This comes from Corinne Miller. Corinne says, I love reading and I read about 60% fiction and 40% nonfiction. Reading helps me understand life experiences different from my own. I enjoy reading about real life hard topics, but I'm also really sensitive and don't do well with graphic de- descriptions of violence or trauma. I love characters, real or not, that are flawed but have some redemptive l- redemption or learning. I also love a strong sense of place in books where the setting is a character. Um, some of the books Corinne says that she has enjoyed are The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, How We Fight for Our Lives, and Red at the Bone. And Corinne also says I'm in the current time of upheaval, I've been having a hard time focusing on books, so I'm looking for stories, memoirs, nonfiction that keep, that can keep me reading. Um, so here are my recommendations for you, Corinne. I'll go first. Uh, I'm going to give her three. You can give her one or two or whatever you feel in your heart. Um, so I would recommend to you "Mountains Beyond Mountains" by Tracy Kidder. It's about uh, an infectious disease doctor named Paul Farmer who was fighting tuberculosis in. Haiti. So you have a strong sense of place. You have a very redemptive person. There's not a lot of graphic violence, though there is some descriptions of, you know, death due to tuberculosis. Um, My next recommendation is called New People by Danzi Senna. You have a super unlikable lead character in Maria, but the book is sort of like a fever dream. It moves real fast. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of wild. I'll let you decide if she's redempted, Redemption or not, but um, it's just a really fun book. And it's set in New York kind of in the early 90s or late 80s, so it does, does have this kind of sense of place, and it's very vibey. And then my last recommendation is very super heavy on Sense of Place. It's called The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom. It's about her family's home in New Orleans. And it also has to do with, it's a memoir, but it is a memoir also of this home and of this place. And it kind of culminates um, around the time of um, Katrina. So those would be my three recs for you. Mark, what do you have?
1: You got, those are all good ones. Um, okay, good. <laughs> and, and, and and Paul and Paul, Far- Paul Farmer is a hero of mine. Yes, Same um i would say uh the beauty and breaking mm. uh which is a wonderful wonderful memoir um by uh Michelle Harper um she's an emergency room physician a black woman um and she talks about sort of her journey not just through the profession which is interesting in and of itself but her journey with with her father her journey with f- finding and losing love um her 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 experiences with death and loss and healing um it's 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 a stunning memoir um very beautifully written um and um i don't want to spoil it but there's just a moment there's this moment where she where she's wrestling with her father and and she finally has to decide to let that go and let him go Mm. um you know and 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 and, and, and and he becomes a ghost to her and she says, you know, it's it's better to be left with a ghost than a ghoul, you know mm-hmm. and and it was like, oh shit, I get it like some mm-hmm. stuff you just gotta let go of um, there's something really beautiful about it um, we talked earlier about Kiese Layman's uh, Heavy um, if you want a memoir I, I think it's maybe the best memoir I've ever read Certainly, sure. it's the best memoir I've read in decades. I I I think it's it's. I think there's heavy and then there's everything else, mm-hmm. um for me, um so so that would be my second one. Um I I I I can't even describe. And you you guys have done an episode on heavy, right?
0: Kiese was on the podcast. Was right, so we he was on doing Amani's book. Yeah. That's what it was. Yes, yeah, so we doing did breathe. Amani's book. Yeah, yeah, doing breathe. So, but Kiese is just all, all anything say, as all of my listeners know is just the greatest. I mean, he's just a, such a talent and it such a no generous better. human.
1: His Facebook posts he his Facebook posts are better written than any book I've ever read. It's like if anything <laughs> he writes, I just be like, "Oh my god." I'm like
0: It's annoying. It's, it's just, annoying. Yeah. It's like, "Okay, we get it. You're so good at writing. We get it. Like, yes. stop." <laughs>
1: It's hurting me how good you are. No, it's, it's,
0: it's, yeah. I'm, I mean,
1: I'm, it makes me want to, you know, like in Love Jones, where she's like reading Sanchez, makes me want to burn my notebook. That's how I feel when he, yes, yes, when, when, when he writes. Um, I'm going to, as a third book, uh, I'm going to go with something off the path for, 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 okay. for her, maybe. Uh, it's called The Runaways, uh, by Fatima Bhutto. Okay. It's a novel, um, and it's 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 a fascinating novel set in a in uh in Afghanistan but it, it it's a it 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 looks at three people from three very different backgrounds who end up in uh they both they all end up joining a um what do you call it a uh they all get radicalized okay. and, and end up joining uh this radicalized uh religious, uh religious movement but it's a story about love, and again, about love, it's about loss, it's about family, it's about violence. Um, but, it's, it, but, the, but what's fascinating about it for me is it's, 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 we often look at people who end up in places we did not expect them to be. Or we look at people who end up in undesirable places but we never think about the backstory that gets them there, right? Like, you can see someone who's right. incarcerated, and you're like, yeah, I don't know how that could happen. Like, I, I, that wouldn't be me. Or, yo, they just joined Al-Qaeda. I, how does, how does, how does a, a white kid from the suburbs end up joining Al-Qaeda? And it's like, you're right. about to find out, right? And, and when you look at right. the story, it doesn't make you approve of their choice, but it makes you understand that the human condition is so complicated and messy that it can land you somewhere that you never imagined you would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I find and it's just damn good writing. Fatima Buto is one of the, one of the great writers uh, of this generation. So um, I think it'll be fun and it'll 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 throw it'll throw you in a, in a new place.
0: Oh, I love that. Okay, Corinne, if you read any of these books, let us know. People at home, if you want a book recommendation, email askingthestacks at gmail Okay, here we go. We always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Like hate hate that's up to you but yeah if you've got one that you hate hate please tell us about okay. it <laughs> no,
1: sometimes you sometimes like it'll be a book that like you can't read because it makes you cry so much because it you know what i mean but you mean like actually dislike.
0: some people use that as a cop-out they're like i don't hate any books and then they just say a book that they love and it's i'm not really asking that weird interview question like tell me about your weakness no okay. i actually want to know what's like okay, what's a book fair. you don't like that's fair okay,
1: okay. i appreciate the transparency <laughs> um so a book two books that i love um hmm. i mean i love so many books uh and I don't want to keep saying the same books over and over. I'm going to look on my shelf and see here. Uh It's not It's not on the shelf. Right. Uh When Engulfed in Flames. Okay. When Engulfed in Flames. Uh by David Sedaris. Okay. David Sedaris for me is uh it's called When You Are Engulfed in Flames. Excuse me. When you are engulfed in flames by David Sedaris is one of my favorites. Uh, I think he's such a, um, I think he's such a brilliant writer, effortlessly hilarious. You know what I mean? I mean, there just there are very few people who can who can consistently make me laugh with the printed. He he's that kind of good. It's it's, it's like when Jay Z raps, where it's like, I, it's so accessible that you almost think you could do it.
0: Right, and then you're like, I'm a, I'm nothing compared to this
1: human. <laughs> right, and then there's a part of you like, oh wait, I can't do this at all, and and, and so that combination for me is is super, super kind of, super kind of neat. Samantha Irby's like that too. Just people who yes. just are are hilarious and brilliant, or, or or and what have you, and and do something special. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with that book. I'm also going to go with, it's, yeah, Remembered Rapture, um remembered rapture remembered rapture um is by bell hooks uh it's called the subtitle is the writer at work um and it's a collection of essays and, and thoughts that bell hooks offers about the practice of writing the process of writing it's part memoirs a lot of bell hooks stuff is It's part cultural criticism um but i walked away understanding writing better understanding the idea of the writer better it made me think really deeply about what it meant to write mem- memoir. Um, the dangers of it, um, the beauty of it. Uh, right. It opened me up to a whole thing. I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to just say those two. Um, and and okay. again, there are probably five million other books that I could say. Just of course, of course. Uh, a book that I hate, um, the bell curve.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: the bell curve, and 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 the reason, uh, and 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 you know, there was a time where the bell curve was the hottest book in the world. I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, I'm talking about like, because the the thing about the bell curve as a book, uh, was that it, it allowed for, um, decades of scientific racism, um, decades of political arguments about black people being inferior, um, decades of of, of white supremacist logic that dominated the world to be almost codified and, and, and legitimized through a book. So Charles Murray, uh, who was at Harvard at the time, Charles Murray and um, Richard Hernstein wrote a book uh, called The Bell Curve in 1994. And the, the book came out in 1994, and, you know, it suddenly allowed people to say, well, it says right here in a book that black people might be genetically inferior and that welfare mm-hmm. might be this and so and so I think why I hate the book is not just cuz the argument for me is is inaccurate or unpersuasive and it's both of those things it's it, I think it's bad science um but it's a reminder of the way that putting something in a book can a, right. can radically reshape public opinion public thought um or reinforce existing thought right. it's like when you see something in a meme that it has to be true right cuz it's in a meme look it's in a meme right. i saw a graphic that said <laughs> it so it must be true um and right. so you know it's like that or like the Willie Lynch letter you know there are these ways that like something being in print gives a, an air of legitimacy and this legitimized um, from elite Ivy League professors no doubt you know no less rather um, some really dangerous thinking and so I absolutely hate the bell curve.
0: Okay, I'll take it. What about the last really truly great book you read?
1: Whew. Great. Yeah, ooh, that's a that's a that's a standard right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I read five books a week. Um, right. so I'm <laughs> gonna go look through my. If you don't, I'm gonna cheat a little bit and look at. See, it's okay. I, I'm gonna look through my Kindle and see what the last mm-hmm. great book I read. A lot of good books, but what's the last great? When I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Nah, that wasn't great. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Some good ones in here. Um, ooh, that's close, but no. Ooh, that's. I'm not just doing this. I'm really like on a great is a lot for me. Okay, great. That's okay, is... we
0: want a lot. I want to know like your standard. You know, what's a book that you're like
1: this shit was great? Like yo. Okay, that 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 is the standard, and that voice. That's the voice that I invoke when I <laughs> when I actually feel that way. Uh, I'm. Going to say that the last great book, great book that I read was, um, it's so close. Um, I'm going to say it was Begin Again. I'm going to say it was Eddie Glaude's Begin Again.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm listening to that right now on audiobook.
1: I I enjoyed that book a great deal. Um, I think it's a great book. Um,
0: and he was your first guest on your podcast that we haven't even talked about. But I had oh, a lot of questions right. about that, that. too. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm supposed to be talking about your podcast, but there's just so much. But he was your first guest. Coffee and books is the name of the podcast. I'm going to try to weave it in some more throughout this interview, so don't worry. But just in case I don't, coffee and books. Fun. I don't even care.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. No. Begin again is a great book. It's um. It's the last great book I read, and it was recent. You know, um. It. it but it. It he was thinking with baldwin mm-hmm. uh which i think is interesting it wasn't a biography of baldwin and it wasn't a meditation on baldwin um right. it was and it wasn't a close reading you know um it was an attempt to be in conversation with baldwin and to link it to the present moment i thought it was well done i thought it was beautiful honestly yeah wow
0: okay so you just dropped the you know ultimate humble brag reader humble brag you read five books a week <laughs> what are you reading right now
1: that was not a humble. That's funny because I some I love to read, but some days it feels like a burden. Um,
0: oh my god! I tell me about it. I'm I, right. <laughs> I,
1: I am reading um, Rage right now, by Bob Bob um, Woodward. Um, oh, you are. Yeah, I, I I don't usually get sucked into the political books, but it's Bob Woodward, and it is the number one book in the country right now. Um, and so okay. I'm like, let me, um, let me, let me, let me read it um, and see. It's hard to imagine. Ever being surprised at something Donald Trump does. But reading this book, I'm like, oh, wow, there's more. Like, oh, wow, you're worse than I thought. You are literally the worst right. person in the world. Um, right. And I ju- I'm just finished. Wait, it- I have to ask oh. you.
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no go no, ahead, go you ahead go. please. I have to ask you about this. This is something something you famously said in 2016. And I'm very curious about where you are on it now, which is you famously were talking about voting green in 2016. Because you thought four years of Donald Trump would allow the left to set up a much better situation for the left for 2020 and start on this more progressive road. And now here we are four years into Donald Trump presidency. What do you think? How do you feel about
1: that? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. I, I think that's not exactly what I was saying four years ago. I, I think that was kind of the, the the pull quote that comes out of a very kind of, long yeah, interview. Yeah, kind of like the, the revamped version. Right, right. You know? Because the kind, I was asked a much more abstract hypothetical, which is... Okay. to which I said, I would rather have four years of Donald Trump and a real progressive movement than to have Hillary Clinton in the status quo. I I didn't believe that those were the stakes. Um, I see. And and so that's why, although I am a Green Party member and very vocally um, believe in the Green Party platform and remain a Green Party member. Even then, I advocated um, vote trading, uh, strategic balloting. I said our top priority has to be Donald Trump not being in the White House. So, so it, okay. it wasn't that I. It wasn't like I was saying, oh, "Let's just see how this goes in, you know, four years." Right. Or how the, the revolution is right. um, That's almost like the caricature of what I said.
0: Well, um, you're way too smart and nuanced for that. So, if that's what it sounded like I was asking you,
1: I don't think that of you. No, I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what most people on Twitter. I get about 50 messages a day. How you feel now about this? every time Donald yeah. Trump does something? What about now, Mr. Green Party? <laughs> how you feel now? What's Jill Stein at now? And so, yeah. um, I, I think this year I'm being far more uh, uh, careful. Um and sure. about what I'm saying and not saying I, I'll say this um four years ago, Donald Trump gave us the opportunity to make Bernie Sanders president right now um sure. and, and and I don't think that could have happened four years ago um but America doesn't want that and that's not yeah. a, you know for a, a, a few reasons but at the end of the day um we are worse off than we were four years ago sure um the country is on fire um And we have to make choices about what we're going to do to put it out. Um, For me, that choice uh, is to remain a Green Party member. Uh, I I have not endorsed Joe Biden, uh, but I will vote for him. Um, As a Green Party member, I will be voting for It'll be the first Democratic um, candidate that I've voted for in a presidential election um, ever. Um, But I, I plan to because I can't sleep at night. Unless I have done everything humanly possible to stop what's happening right now at this moment from happening anymore.
0: Wow, wow!
1: Okay. And you're the first person i have told. That to. To...
0: Ooh, I'm breaking news.
1: <laughs> I don't think my opinions are news, but it, but it is. You are the first person, so
0: it is breaking news to me as someone who <laughs> pretends to be a journalist. I've said this before on the podcast. I my. As much as I love books and reading, my dream job is to be a journalist only because I read All the President's Men and thought, wow, this is so fucking cool. And so someone <laughs> someone sent me like a hate email about how I had done something wrong on this podcast. And they were like, as a journalist. And all I heard was, as a journalist? Me? Oh, me my journalist? God. They, I, <laughs> I like wrote back, thank you so much for your kind email. <laughs> like, and the woman was like, you're an idiot. And I hate your guts. And I'm like, thank you for calling me a journalist. So right. as someone who is a journalist... I'm very excited to have broken news, so just allow me to have this moment, please.
1: Enjoy. Um, it. Wait,
0: we'll go back to your book. So you told me you're reading Rage. Are you reading anything else, or just are you a one-book pony, as I like to call no,
1: it? No, no, no. So I, I, so I have, I have, I can only read one in a particular, of a particular sort. So I, like, if I'm okay. reading Rage, I can read like a social science book or a history book um, at the same time. I can read a book of theory at the same time. I can read a novel at the same time. Okay, and. And then I bounce back, depending on the day and the mood. Um, so, for example, this week, I I started Rage. I I'm almost done. I have a I've I've have like another chapter in uh, this new uh, J, JFK biography, which came either. I don't know if it came out this week or if it comes out next week, but um, it's like 800 pages. So, yeah. Uh, it's a, but it's a wonderful. Um, I I believe it came out this week. Um, it, it, it's called J F K. Um, coming of age in the American century and it looks at JFK's life from 1917 the year he's born until 1956 so okay. Eisenhower is still president and then the next volume of it which will come out in a couple of years will be from 56 to 63 those last uh, wow. seven years right. so so it's a lot of interesting backstory of of how he became the person that he became and it's a, it's a wonderful book Um. so I read that at the same time and I finished reading this week uh, and had a wonderful conversation actually uh, with Jessica Marie Johnson uh, who wrote an amazing book called wicked flesh black women uh intimacy and um and freedom in the atlantic world black women intimacy and freedom in the atlantic world and it's 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 a it's a she's, a she's a she's a historian and she looks at new orleans and she looks at new mm-hmm. and it's sort of a history of new orleans but 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 looking at the role that black freed women played there um and she goes across archives in three continents she's reading the french she's re- i mean it's 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 a scholarly masterpiece, and so like reading that and the JFK book along with, um, you know, the kind of stuff I have to read for work, and of course, Rage, uh, the, the Trump right. book, is, is is it's been quite fun. It's been quite fun.
0: Do you read a lot of new stuff because you're a bookseller, and so you want to know what's coming out, or do you can you find a balance between sort of the newer stuff and then older things that have been on your list or that you've always wanted to get to?
1: I try to strike a balance. Um, I try to read. So so because I run a bookstore and a podcast, um, there's a really good chance on, on, on that every week I have to be interviewing somebody about a book that just came out or recently came out. Right. So that right. That, that automatically puts me in a certain kind of lane in terms of what I'm gonna be reading. But I'm also always working on a book. Sure. And so um because I'm working on a book all the time, I'm also drilling down into like the the, the kind of um minutia. And the kind of super detailed analyses and the theoretical stuff. I, I to give you, a, I'll give you an example. I, I'm I'm working on a new, new book. It'll, it'll it won't be. It'll be probably two years before I turn this manuscript in. Um, but it's a, it's a book on the Afro Palestinian community in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. Um, it's a more traditional scholarly book. But to do this, I had to. I've had to read every single book there is on Jerusalem, and then after right. reading all every book there is on race in the middle east and i have to read every book there is on sort of african migration patterns from west africa to to mecca back to jerusalem etc and so so on any given week in addition to reading like next week like today i'll be reading um i'll be starting michael denzel smith's new book um Mm. and i'm very excited about michael's um his, his his new book uh stakes is high um yeah but but i also will be reading um this uh new book called traces of racial exception racializing Israeli settler colonialism, uh, which right. is a far more, uh, as you can imagine, narrow kind of field specific analysis. Both are dope, but I've right. re- been reading that with that. And then maybe, um, uh, going back and rereading just for my own pleasure, uh, brother Ray, which is David mm. Ritz's, um, biography of Ray Charles. Um, and, and, and just to add this to the mix, one of my favorite things to read are biographies of famous people. Hmm. Um, I love a good biography. I mean, I like a memoir, I like an autobiography, sure. but a good, like, like I'm talking about like uh, Craig Seymour's uh, book on Luther Vandross or
0: mm. or
1: w- who's my favorite artist of all time, okay. um, or uh, uh, or David Ritz's biography of Aretha Franklin. You know, which was badass because he wrote a book with Aretha. He wrote an autobiography with her.
0: Oh wow!
1: And then twenty years later, writes a biography on her, saying she wasn't telling the truth in the autobiography. <laughs> I mean, there's some there's some shit the with shade. that. Oh, tons of it, right? And it's a fascinating oh my gosh. thing. I had David on my on uh, my podcast, Coffee and Books, and he t- I, I had to, I had to push him on that a little bit, like, bro, like okay. you wrote this book with her. And he's like yeah but it was a lie and you know I was like yeah but she wouldn't have done this with you if she had known 20 years later you're going to do this yeah. other thing but but it's a bad it's amazing 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 book or like um or or David Levering Lewis's uh two volumes on Du Bois like okay. there's whoo man um ain't nothing like it ain't nothing like a good biography of a famous person i'm telling you it's it's my favorite thing
0: I love that. That's not really my wheelhouse. I'm not wild about books about famous people necessarily, but if it's, I mean, look, if anything's really good, if it's yeah. a really good book, I'll read it, right. you know? Let me ask you, generally speaking, with that in mind, are there any genres or types of books that you just don't read or just aren't that into?
1: Um. Yes. Y- yet, well, I- I'll say that I don't read enough. I won't say that I'm not into. So, for example, um, I don't read enough fiction. But I want to read more fiction, right? Uh, Like, I want to go pick... There's, like, a list of, like, books from Saramango to... uh, To... uh, Jesus. um, uh, uh, Juno Diaz, despite all the ill shit we know about him. That first book, I'm I'm still being told I need to just read. Um, You know, I I need to go back and read all of Octavia Butler's stuff, you know, with a different Mm -hmm. eye. You know, so, you know, I don't read enough of it, but it's not because I don't think it's worth reading. It's because I just... Because of what I do for a living, I, sure. I I I end up with a finite amount of time, and I just want to be mindful of it. Um, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to. But I find that my life is better, more joyful. Uh, I'm more energized. I'm more creative. I'm more thoughtful when I'm reading when I'm reading fiction. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be something that I don't read, but not something that I don't like. Um, in terms of something I actually just don't like, I don't like in general, um, kind of hot off the press political like polemics yeah. like i if, if there's a book with a with a with a with some republican or democrat on the cover with their arms folded telling me w- what's about to happen to america or some shit like that for me is no like a, a, no and those books yeah. don't matter like half those books that are number one on the new york times list like in in, in six months they'll people will be rolling right. weed on them you know what i mean right. like like right. like they, they won't exist and and i don't right. i don't like those kinds of books i want books that don't have legs
0: yeah. I'm with you on that for sure. This, I mean, I think I have to ask this because there are people at home sitting there being like, okay, so he's a professor. He owns a bookstore. He does these book events. He's a writer. He does this. How do you find the time and what is your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Do you have snacks or beverages? Like when you're reading, what does that look like?
1: It's a Good question. Um, over the, over time, my reading is had more and more on my phone because I'm so busy. So, okay. So, for example, um, on my Kindle, and that's right off the iPhone. I don't do anything any fancy Kindle stuff. Just right off the iPhone, um, I may have any. I think I have maybe five hundred to a thousand books right now, and so um, that allows me to pick up the books that I that I that I have always wanted to read. I tend to back up books that I have to read. So, for example because uh, I still believe in brick-and-mortar bookstores and, like, all of that stuff. Of you know, it's kind of <laughs> right. it's good for business. So if I like if I buy the JFK book, I have a physical copy and I have a digital copy. And right. what that allows me to do is when I'm traveling, I don't have to carry all those books. But it also means whenever I have dead time... You know when you have dead time, you start scroll, people start flipping on Instagram or Twitter? That's when yes. I'm on Kindle. So for me, like, if I'm in New York and I'm in an Uber or if I'm on the subway, and I do both... Pre-COVID, I was, it was mostly subway. Like, that 20-minute ride, that's twenty minutes of good reading I can get in. Yeah. Um, in the bathroom, reading um, airplanes, I get a ton of reading in. Um, my, the best I, reading. Would you say
0: the best reading on an airplane? Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but my, in terms of my normal setup or my most ideal setup, when I wake up in the morning, I like to wake up and go straight to a book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I the the goal is to read for a couple hours, write for a couple hours. Um. You know, I like, I love when I can do it in a warm climate. So like, if it's if it's spring in Philly or New York, I can sit out on my patio or my porch, depending on where I am, and just read and enjoy, uh, and enjoy a book. I don't need I don't read well with music. Um, I'm already have a little bit of ADD, so like, I my best reading is when there's nothing but silence in me and the book. Uh, maybe a glass of water or something, but honestly, no food, nothing else, just me and the book. Um, and when I'm traveling. Um, it's me, the book, in a restaurant, or me, the book, in the bar, when I'm traveling. Whether and if it's abroad, oh my God! Like when I, when I was doing my research in Jerusalem, I mean, it, every day I I'd, I'd, I'd go and and sit in like this um this garden area with a nice glass of lemonade, and mm. in the book, and I could read for hours like that
0: i sounds so great. I miss travel. I just miss <sighs> <was> outside. <laughs> yeah, outside too. Okay, I'm, I'm really running out of time. So I'm going to do something that I've never done before, which is I'm going to ask you a question that you ask other people, which is your favorite game from your podcast. Buy it,
1: oh, no. borrow it, or burn it. This is hurtful. Wow, I mean, we were doing so well. I I did
0: my research. I see how you play this little game with your little guests. It's mean, <laughs> it's spiteful, yes. and I'm turning it on you, Mark, okay? So for those of you who don't listen to Coffee and Books, at the end of every episode, Mark forces his kind and generous, loving author <laughs> guests to talk shit in a way that is really deeply hurtful. And what he does is he gets them to talk about books that they love and all the stuff that they love so much leading up to this question of, I'm going to tell you three books. You have to buy one, borrow one, and burn one. Cool. So Mark, here we go. Buy it, burn it, borrow it. Kia Layman's Heavy. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And we'll do Eddie God's. Begin Again.
1: Oh, that was that was very kind of you. That last <laughs> one, because
0: <laughs> I, I, I was trying. I was trying to decide between. I, there was another one. I don't know. I tried to. Decide.
1: Eddie, because Eddie can't get mad at me for burning that one in compared okay. to the other two. So I'm gonna tell you right now. I'm I, I'm going to burn. Begin again. I love you, <laughs> Eddie. I made love it too easy. I
0: made it too easy. You did. See, oh.
1: I've done that before to guess too. You get soft at the because you feel so guilty. Now if you had thrown Baldwin in there, I would have flipped this table over. See, you, you okay. gave me an out, but fine. it's fine. It's too late so it's i'll burn I'll burn begin again um simply because I, I you know um I buy the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it's not even close um okay. as a as a piece of literature, I actually think that Heavy is a better book it is um and I don't think it's close, but the autobiography of Malcolm X is the most important book. Um, in my life. Um,
0: I'm gonna pause you there because we're gonna spend the next like hour talking about it. Yeah. So for people who are listening at home, you get a whole hour of us talking fair, about the autobiography of Malcolm X. So we're just gonna leave it at the most important okay. book. Say, so
1: I, I, let me say it like this, and if you edit it, you can do it that way too. So okay. for me, the, I buy the autobiography of Malcolm X because it, you know, it's just the most important book. In my life, it's just it, there's there's nothing like it for me. It changed my life. I borrow, um, I borrow heavy because it means so much to me. And I'm I might get a couple overdue notices, but I'm a borrow heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I love Eddie so much, and I hate to have to burn a book that I think is such a wonderful book and really should be on the National Book Award list this year, but I'm a burn begin again only because it's compared to two books that I think are, are two of the best books of the century.
0: Okay. Next time I'm going to, I hate this game. You. Yeah. Now you're not going to play it anymore. Oh, I would know. I'm uh, going to play it
1: even harder. I'm that person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the person that had a shitty childhood and makes their kids. Laugh anymore.
0: <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Okay. And then last, last, last question. We always end here. If you could require, stole it from the New York times. If you could require one, book for the current president of the United States to read, what would it be? Trump? Yeah, the current one.
1: Um, I try to dream out, you know. I, 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 <laughs> so much, it's also like the idea of Trump and book just seems so ill-fitting. Yeah, I and know. I was like,
0: you have to kind of suspend your disbelief that yes. he could read and understand what was in the book Fair and point. would be able to finish it and all that stuff.
1: Fair point. Um, the DSM-4. Or Ooh. DSM-5. Yeah, I, I, I want him. He needs to do some serious reflection on his own his own mental state and and some of his most deep forms of pathology and dysfunctionality. Because he doesn't have a temperament to it's not he doesn't have a worldview. So so showing him a better argument wouldn't matter. And he doesn't have a conscience. Right. So so the, the the appeal to to that wouldn't help. But maybe okay. if he sees what he's struggling with, he he might want to stop it for his own benefit, for his own for his own sake, not anyone else's. That's That's I'm going out on a limb there, but that's gonna be my best. I like that. My best one.
0: I like that so much. Okay, we're going to end here now. Mark will be back the last Wednesday of the month. We're going to discuss the autobiography of Malcolm X. You can hear why it's the most important book of Mark's lifetime. Um, That's our book club pick. But for now, we're going to say goodbye to Mark. Um, I will link to all of his social media. I will link to all of his books and things in the show notes. Um, Everything we talked about, of course, will be in the show notes. So for now, um, Mark, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. This is one of my most favorite interviews ever, seriously. Yes, I love it. I'm a journalist. And everybody
0: else, we will see you in the stacks. That does it for us today on the stacks. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to our guest, Mark Lamont Hill. Remember, Mark will be back on October 28th to discuss the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley for The Stacks Book Club. Thank you also to Annie Nathan and Karis Nelson for helping us set up this interview. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks underscore on Twitter, and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode was edited and produced by Will Sterling. Our graphic designer is Robin McCreight and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.